Hi, I'm Margie Haber. I've been an acting coach for 30 years, helping actors find their personal power and learn to create. Let's face it, all of us need to let go of control, get rid of the straitjacket we call our comfort zone, and remove the walls that prevent us from being vulnerable. It's all about hope. So let's begin this journey together and give ourselves permission to fuck your comfort zone. I just want everyone to know that I am about to start my podcast with one of the greatest of all time actors. How you like that for a great start? <laughs> Who I'm so proud of, Denim Richards. And he is what we'd call a Hollywood star whose careers have spanned over two decades in TV, film, and stage. And he is all, really known and loved for starring in Paramount Network's hit show, Yellowstone, playing the role of Colby, as well as his breakout reoccurring role on Freeform number one show, Good Trouble, and many, many other things that you have done. Because I think of you as an actor, a director, a writer, an author, and a humanitarian. Welcome to my show. Mm. How are you today? What an introduction. And Margie, it's always great to, to be able to talk with you. Um, and I'm going to bring you with me everywhere I go to introduce me everywhere. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's because I've fallen in love with you because you're in my class. If you were just a general actor somewhere that I was interviewing, that would be a whole different story. But the fact that I'm now madly in love with you and your wife is going to have to compete with me now, okay, for the uh, love I have for you. Well, I am so happy you're you're in my class. We're going to get to all of it. I mean, or as much for anyone who doesn't know, which you don't know, but Denim and I talk more than any human beings in the world. So the question is, can we get this done with a short period of time? It's doubtful, but we'll try. I, I actually, uh, before I left, I was like, maybe I should leave my uh, uh, phone charger at home so that it dies and that lets us <laughs> It's too long. It's done. So. <laughs> so um what I'm excited about, first of all, let's just start giving a background to people who don't know you uh, and how it all began from the beginning. So as far as your acting career, then we'll get to the other stuff of your life. Okay. But okay. your acting career, how did that all begin? Um, the acting career began when I was five years old. Um, I was at a school and they would do these plays every Friday. It was like an assembly where K through eighth grade would have to put on a performance every week. And I was in kindergarten and the teacher told me, we're going to do this play. You just stand here and hold this sign when the time comes. And then on the Friday, I started seeing all the family members and students and all these other grades. And I was like, I can't just stand here. Like I have to give them a performance. So I performed and um, she didn't like that, but they did. And <laughs> that, they called me, uh, called my parents and said, you know, we're having this assembly that's like 600 people, um, you know, this annual event. Do you think you'd want to sing? And so um, they were like, yeah, sure. So I got to be taken out of class early and uh, <laughs> and I loved it because I got to be taken out of class so I didn't have to do schoolwork and uh, <laughs> thing. And then after that, you couldn't, you couldn't stop me. And I musical theater and then it just kind of, now we're here, you know, but it's been a, it's been a journey for sure. So, you know, when you talk about that, uh, we, you have no idea how many things we have in common. I just want to say that because I started at five years old wow. in camp for the, doing a musical comedy my first thing I ever did was Dites-moi pourquoi la vie est belle from South Pacific. I was five years old. So that alone begins our career together. It does. It does. Mine was the Lion King. Mine was like, that was that was me saying, I, I just can't wait to be king in class. Um, and my mom used to say, <laughs> um, don't do this when you go to school. And I couldn't help it. I was seeing the soundtrack. And one day the teacher called and said, your son is singing the Lion King again in class and being disruptive. And she said, well, is he on pitch? Um, <laughs> That's all she cared about. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved from there because then to your teenage life. Yes. Um, teenage life was interesting. I was, you know, I signed with a, a, a good agency, Osbrink. Um, when I was getting ready to go into my, you know, younger teens and they were kind of known, especially during that time for cultivating younger actors. Right. 
And um, I wasn't really prepared for television and film. I wanted to like hang out with my friends and play basketball. And you would get like these giant auditions for like, I think it was like American dream and like these giant kind of shows at the time. And I would come into these auditions so unprepared, nervous, scared because I wasn't prepared. Um, And so then Osbrink was like, look, you know, maybe later on down the road, <laughs> like we just, we just can't keep sending him to these big auditions and then he's going in and, blow it. and can't even talk because he's so nervous. Um, so I took, where my... was I in, during that time? I could have changed your life for God's I, sakes. I, I, I used think... to work with Osbrink all the time with their was, young kids. You probably were somebody that they recommended, but I had been scammed so many times. My family had been scammed so many times by these acting coaches with these classes, yeah. they're dating, oh, the you know, worst. They recommend a manager, but then they're dating the manager. Like oh, it was just the worst, so cool. you know? So I think that's what happened. But then I got back into musical theater um, and I did like 20 musical theater productions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was like 17, 18, that's when I was like, I think I want to take this uh, like acting thing seriously. Started trying to do commercials. Couldn't bring it down to where you have to be <laughs> on camera. Um, it's just very small and trust yourself. And that was not me. I was like, I'm a show person. Um, and so that took me into my twenties and then went through a lot of poor times. Uh, you know, I lived in my car. I almost got a wow. big, kid. um, you know, I would always ask my parents for like the bare minimum. Cause I had so much pride that I never mm-hmm. let them know that I wasn't doing what I thought I was going to do. And then, um, one day it just clicked for me. Um, it was like, I was watching a movie and I remember it was what, um, I was actually watching doubt, um, you know, with Meryl Streep and, uh, Viola Davis, Amy Adams. And there was a scene at Philip Seymour Hoffman. And there was a scene where I was watching Meryl Streep just play with her beads. Yes. I was sitting there and I get chills just talking about it right now. Me too. Like she's just playing with her beads and Philip is talking and she's saying so much by just being occupied with these beads. I want to do that. And then after yeah. that's what I started doing. I started going into auditions with the mindset of I'm going to do the, the least amount as possible with my like facial expressions, but be actively thinking about something. And there was um, Michael Caine had done um, the acting with your eyes thing in maybe the eighties. And I yeah. watched maybe a thousand times and uh, yes. that really helped me out. And, um, but it is it is what's interesting for me, which is what my life became. It's all about behavior. We talk about that in class. And the fact that you would, at such a young age, be able to observe, ah, that's what acting is. It's mm-hmm. not speaking. It's being preoccupied. Mm-hmm. It's being in your thought. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to watch people think. It's mm-hmm. boring to watch people talk. And it's fascinating awesome. to watch people like Meryl Streep, who takes just a small little piece of, be- of behavior, I don't call it business, right. and own that. And we are fixated by it. Isn't that a lesson in itself? It is the most beautiful thing. And, you know, Michael Caine, when he was doing his class, he said he had done this play. And in this play, he didn't have any lines. And the director said, you're just going to sit here um, on the stage. And th- during the scene, the director had come to Michael. Michael said, and he said, what are you doing in this scene, Michael? And Michael said, uh, nothing. I don't know have anything to say and the director was like nonsense you have wonderful things exciting things sad things you just decide not to say them and he said michael said at that moment is when he yeah. hit him of oh you have there's so much going on in here and then when you start to observe human behavior you start to really understand how layered everything is and that to me is now the journey that i'm on um as an actor yeah. is just honing that behavior of being an artist. And I see so much of it in class. I mean, I know we're skipping around here, but just to say to you, how isn't it fascinating to watch people in class when you see that they're actually thinking, when you know that there is layers and layers of behavior versus when you're fearful, which happens when you're afraid, you don't want to shut up and you want to keep it going because you don't want to bore people. (laughs) Do you find that to be true? Oh, absolutely. That that's find that to be true is like 27 years of my life. (laughs) Just you get so nervous that um, because I think it's just it's been improper training where you get into a space and you're not thinking about things 
and everything when you're like, you know, when you leave the audition room, you're on the elevator ride home and you're on the way, the car ride home. And then you do the audition and you believe what you just said. And you're like, why can't I just do that? And it was like, because you were allowing yourself to sit in it and you were affected and you didn't mm-hmm. have the, the energy of it all. Um, and so just now being able to watch. And so it's, it's really taken my artistry and my appreciation for the art to a completely different level, you know, and I will watch people. Oftentimes I watch movies on mute now. Um, yeah, just me too. what they do. And I just find it fascinating. Yeah. This is what I teach people. I said, you know, when you watch a show, watch it first, listen to it and then turn the, turn it off. I mean, the volume off and you would be able to know exactly what's happening because the behavior is so powerful. Okay. Well, we could go on for hours about that because this is my favorite subject, but continue on with your, with your, I know that you're into opera because another thing you and I have in common Another thing is my father was an opera singer. My mother was a concert pianist. Oh, my wow. sisters and all sat around the piano when I was young. And that and music was my life. So I know that opera, yeah. I used to go to Metropolitan Opera House when I was 12, 13, 14. So oh. you had that experience, didn't you? Oh, my gosh. So the first time I heard opera, I I was like smacked in the face you know especially it was so weird because i think i was like 16 15 when i first got exposed to it and i went to my first opera and um what was it uh i think what was my first i think it was uh i think it was madame butterfly i was gonna say it must have been madame butterfly because everyone's introduced to to it uh, for Madame Butterfly, correct. It's, it's amazing. And so, you know, I became obsessed with Leontine Price and Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle. Um, mm-hmm. It's like Leontine Price to me, I was like, you just, I, all day. And I was still, to this day, I go into these black holes where it's just Leontine Price for hours. Um, and so I went from there. I, I loved I, it. I really want to, to do this. And so I learned my first opera, which was the Air Kernick, which is a... Oof super stressful German <laughs> uh, piece where you play three different characters <laughs> from uh, being a baritoner to a baritone to a bass. And I'm a bass. And I remember it was the first time I was ever in a class and I was crying. Like I was so, cause I couldn't understand how to be, to get the flow, the vibrato flow and not have it be in the straight tone. And, but I, what I realized is like, it gives you such structure. And if you can, Mm. You don't even have to master it because you never master opera. Although I do think Leontine Price did. If you yeah. can introduce that into your life, to me, it's like ballet for dancers. You yeah. know, you can do that. You can do a lot of things. And so um, that was that was a lot of my life for a long time. Um, I still listen to it all the time. Uh, Don Carlos is my favorite um, opera now because the bass is just phenomenal. It just my goodness. Um, so yeah, so my goodness, my my father was a tenor so we always listened to mary lanza okay yeah you know it was always about be my love forever you know and i never got (laughs) what this told me was like i learned very early on in my life that i was never going to be a star of an opera because they're all tenors and so i was like either be as the bass or either like the villain or the godfather and when you're 16 (laughs) like there's there's no place for you so just be a very good concert artist and so that's what turned me into just wanting to sing at concerts and things of that nature. It's a great discipline. And anybody who can do opera um, can really, really hones into the discipline. So what came next as we go along to your first audition, your first films or stuff like that? So first, um, so I would say, you know, I got into the commercial, the commercial world um, because it allowed me to be a little bit bigger in certain spaces and the reaction <laughs> Helpful. Um, and so I booked like multiple national commercials um, pretty quickly, like from Gatorade to Nike to NBA 2K and, you know, phone commercials. And that was great because what that instantaneously did is it stopped me from worrying about how to pay my bills. And I felt yeah. like I could really focus on just the craft of it all instead of, you know, for a, a large part of my life. And I believe a lot of actors, it's, you know, you're, you want to focus on an opportunity, but the opportunity becomes so big when you have to pay your bills and when you have to yes. eat 
but you know, gas in your car. So, you know, you would get an audition for like a director, like, like Ridley Scott. And then you're immediately like, if I get this, this means that I would be able to do this. And then, and, and so now it's, I'll be able to pay my bills. I'll be able to buy my first car. I'll right. be able to have, maybe I'll even be able to go to the grocery store at Whole Foods instead of going to Vons. You know, exactly. <laughs> right. And then, so you end up now trying to be whatever you think yeah. they want you to be in that audition. Yes. And so please them. you're constantly trying to please always being in a pleasing space and agreeing with everything, yeah. always agreeing with the character. Right. Yeah. And so this was the problem. And so when I started booking um, nationals, it was really helpful because I was like, now I can feel like I can really focus on, on yeah. this. And, you know, as you get older, you do start to have this time clock of like, how long are you going to play around with this? You know, I, I would allow myself to be distracted with wanting to go out and, you know, hang out with a lot of women and just always allow myself to be very distracted because I always knew that I was like, I felt, I was like, I'm so talented. And I knew this is what I tell myself all the time. And I felt like I could just turn it on anytime I wanted to. And then when I tried to turn it on, I was like, I'm, I'm why isn't yeah. it, the, why isn't the car clicking over? Like what's, yeah. And that was very humbling for me of like, do do not think you can come in with these opportunities and you're dedicating 10% of your life to this. And people are spending their entire life studying this. It's disrespectful to the craft. Um, but it, it, it's similar to sports, right? I mean, you, 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 people, the people that really focus and are, they are focused on it. They prepare, they, they make it all about being the best they can be. Yes. It's it's too competitive not to. Plus, it doesn't give you the full commitment. You, the commitment has got to be very large. And the sad part, like you're saying, is uh, like someone in our class, you know, who's has two children now. This guy, right? And he's he's got a. How is he going to make his ends meet? He's not working right now. He's got to do that. And and yet, that's why he never misses class. It's why it's so important to be in class because he has to keep the creativity going. You never want to let go of creativity. You cannot. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm blessed that, you know, I was, I always told myself before that I always wanted to have a family, but I had a, a price mark that I needed to have before I felt like I could have a family. And so that, <laughs> gave me a, that was like a governor for me, even when I was going out and doing things I didn't have any business doing. Um, because I knew I was like, you're not even at a place where you could afford to have a family. So just relax. Um, and so what ended up happening was I decided, you know, I was on actors access and LA casting and casting frontier and the new act, I you know, paying all this money. And one day I said, Denim, what would happen if you went to every single audition that you got from actors access? Like what would happen? And I was like, well, I don't know, like, let's just try it. And so I did. And this was in 2017, and there was this role. Um, it was called for his chicken. It's called Chickasaw Rancher, and it was to play this character Jack Brown, and he was a African American sharecropper in Oklahoma. And so this is a real story. And I'm part of my journey as an artist is I always want to play people that had existed before. And I thought, but I thought that's something that I did when you are going after an Oscar or getting a part of those right. big pictures. And so I happened to go in. It was so specific, this role, which was like he had to be able to sing. He had to be able to ride a horse, um, you know, and he had to be able to be comfortable with shooting guns. And I went into this role. I went in and I just fully allowed myself to just fall into it. I watched like 12 Westerns before I had even got just to get myself in this space. Um, And I was watching period pieces because this was based in 1860. And so wanting yeah. to understand, you know, my, as a black man in 1860, you cannot have the same type of conversations with white people in the same way with the same um, authority that you could do in 2022 or at that time, 2017. And then I went into the audition and I remember I when I got in there, there was like a whole page that I had completely messed up. But they, and it wasn't until I stopped myself, I was like, I actually don't even know what I'm saying. And the casting director was so enthralled in the believability of what I was saying that she didn't even realize that she's looking at the script and didn't realize that I wasn't even wow. doing it. And then a couple of weeks later, I booked it. Um, what to- does that prove to you? What does that prove to you? When you, when you're saying the casting director was, didn't really even realize that I'd skipped a page. What does that mean then? You don't have to be perfect. 
That's right. what that means. Right. You don't have to be perfect. And it's just, you have to be, you have to believe what you're saying and you have to be living that, that person. You have to be living that right. character slice. And that taught me that lesson. And so what happened was immediately after this is, I've told you this story. Um, you know, at that time, I, you know, I didn't have any money and I've known about Ms. Marge for uh, so long. <laughs> Right. And I just didn't ever have any money. I was like, I could never afford to take her class. I was like, I never, and I was like, would never even reach out. And so one day I was in uh, Barnes and Noble. Cause I was like, well, at least I could afford a book if there's some type of acting book. <laughs> and so I went and bought her book. I think your book was like 24 99 or 22 99. Wow. I think it was at that time, which was a major investment for me. <laughs> at the time. How to get the part without falling um, apart. And I read over that book so many times before I went on the set and I was just like, man, like I, if one day I know this was like myself already putting myself in this place, the space of I'm committed now I'm dedicated. I'm in this thing um, of this, this world of acting, this world of the entertainment industry. And I went on set and we were doing this scene with this actor named Tommy Flanagan, who's been on Sons of Anarchy and all these other things. And we do this very intense scene. And it was like four o'clock in the morning. I've been in my trailer three different times. And they had come to my trailer and said, we have to, we have to boot your scene. And I spent all day getting into these, this character for this moment, a biggest moment of the movie for this character. And three different times of me sitting in my trailer for like nine to 10 hours, they would knock on the door and say, we're not going to get there today. And it was just so the fourth or time that they came, it was like three or 30 in the morning. And they came, they said, Denim, we're ready for you. They said, but here's the thing. We had, we spent a lot of time on his coverage, you know, and I was a newer actor at the time. So, you know, he can take as much time on his coverage. And he's like, so we got about two takes for your coverage. And I was uh, like, Oh my gosh. So God. we're in the middle of nowhere. I'm around a campfire and I do this scene. And a day later, Tommy walks up to me and he goes, man, talented and he was like i want to tell you something he's like i have a friend his name is john linson um he is the executive producer for sons of anarchy and he's doing a new show that kevin costner is also doing it's called yellowstone and it's a western and you need to get in front of them immediately so i called my reps and I said, hey, there's a show John Linson, uh, you know, is doing. Kevin just signed on. And like, we see Yellowstone and Deadline, but we don't see any auditions for it. I said, we'll figure that out. So maybe a week or two later, um, they said, can you send us some photos from this Western that you were doing? And I, so I sent them. And then I had an audition. And then like 20 hours later, I was in a producer session with John Linson, John Papsadere. So fast. Um, and Taylor Sheridan on Zoom. And I still get chills to it today because it just changed my life. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Taylor was looking at me after I had done the read and he was like, you know, this is a, he, he was like, so you, you're comfortable being on a horse and doing the cattle and cowboy. I was like, bro, I was born to do this. And he was <laughs> like, this is a really important role. Oh, this is very important too. He told me when you're reading, they didn't have any lines written for Colby. So when I had gone in to read, I'm reading for this character, Colby, but I'm not reading lines for Colby. And Taylor told me, he's like, I don't have anything written for him yet. I just know he doesn't die. Um, so it's an important role. You want to be him, but we don't have anything to read for this character. And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? How does it work? Um, and so, you know, I had to wait maybe like seven weeks after that. I couldn't focus on anything else. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Every day, I even got to the point where I told my manager, do not call me unless it's about Yellowstone. I can't, I can't handle the anxiety. And so one day um, I got a phone call, she was screaming and I just cried. Like I just started crying in the car. Huh. It just felt like it was just this whole process. Um, and yeah. And after that, it was just, you know, I was able to be blessed to be on this show for the first two seasons as a, a strong reoccurring. And then season three, they bought me to yeah. Greg. Um, and yeah. so what is the difference now? I mean, congratulations on all of it because what a great story. What is the difference when you are put up to the position of being a series regular? I think it's, I mean, a lot of it is, I mean, it's responsibility to me. You know, one of the things I, I, I remember when I was 18, I had a publicist that said, you know, a lot of these studios are not going to take a big swing on um, males until they're like in their 30s. 
because of a maturity thing. And I remember yeah. I was in my late 20s. I was like, I really feel like I need to take this seriously, like a Kobe Bryant would take when, you know, for his art or Michael Jordan, because exactly. I was an athlete. And I said, I need to start being somebody that I would invest in as well. Like I wanted to be somebody that a production could send home on a Friday and not be worried that Friday night or Saturday morning, they're getting a phone call saying such and such is having to do this. And now we have to do PR damage, damage yeah. control. And so I started treating myself like that, you know, like going home, not going out, not doing this, not doing it. It wasn't not having fun, but it was like taking the responsibility. So then when being bumped up to a series reg, to me, it showed that this production company, 101 Studios, Viacom, Paramount, believed in not only your capabilities, but believed you were an adult and could handle the responsibilities of a show like what this was uh, with the people of Kevin Costner's and the Kelly Riley's, the Cole Hauser's, Luke Grind, Wes Bentley, you know, and these people have all become my dear friends now um, in the first two and years. And you've had to actually be able to say, I am willing to grow up. Yes. I am willing to do the things and be disciplined. I am willing to say, what's more important to me, going out and getting drunk tonight or coming home and getting good sleep? What's yeah. more important, a uh, chewy chocolate bar or a Hershey chocolate bar because you and I love him so much. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you're so correct. You know, and I know that you've seen so many actors come through that, what I call the trap. It's a success trap, right? You get bumped up to series reg. Now you feel like the world is your oyster. You stop, you start to fall off. You start to not have the same discipline. And the blessing that I've had with Yellowstone was the first two years even though I wasn't um, a series reg, I was still in every episode and I was, so I was with them all the time. And so I would sit with Kevin Costner and Cole Hauser and you know, Luke, and they would tell me the pitfalls that they fell into when they were coming up and things like that. So to be able to sit at around campfires, um, you know, and maybe over a bottle of wine and just have these, these elite people giving you, imparting knowledge onto you, and teaching you about how you have to be able to capitalize. And I remember my dad called me and he said to me one day when I was sitting in my office and he says, son, um, and I don't, he didn't, I don't even know how he even knew this. He's just very in tune with me. And he's like, son, um, I want to let you know that the, the art is a string of pearls. And this is one pearl to put on the string. And it hit me so hard because what he was telling me at that time was, this isn't all you're going to do, but a pearl is so precious because it's so hard to find a pearl. So when you find it, take care of it like you might not find it again, but also don't allow yourself to get complacent because the goal is to build a necklace. And still mm, to this beautiful. Day, it's Let's just take a second for that for your father, because that is to me, that is what a lesson for everybody to listen to for a second. You know, when, when you think about whatever it is, maybe it's not just an actor, maybe it's getting married, maybe it's having children. They can all be their own pearls, can't they? Yeah. To to have a string of life. Yes. And each pearl needs to be taken care of. And yeah. that means your health, that means your family, that means your friendship, that means your career. Yeah. Uh, so within that uh, is the big picture of a, of a great, maybe that's a necklace, right? right? Right. And 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 the and your career is your per is your bracelet. bracelet. But the concept of if thinking that to, that to be able to to clean it, to take care of it, to they're they're beautiful, mm -hmm. and they're, each piece is beautiful. I think that's part of what I talk about in "Fuck Your Comfort Zone" uh, right. in my book, which is to validate each piece of yourself. Yes. And that we we tend to uh, because we want perfectionism, we want to be in control. We don't celebrate. Mm -hmm. all the beauty that we have and we don't forgive ourselves when we, uh, when we fall off that. Absolutely. No, it's, it's your, your one. And I still, to this day, that's what I think about. And it's really, it's made me more focused. Um, especially like as I've gotten older, because I'm, I'm I believe in myself more now because yeah. I don't have a halo effect. It's very much, you know, and having those two years, I always thank Taylor for it. I feel like Taylor always had a plan for me within the show and to be able to give like the amount of knowledge, you know, I think a lot of actors, they fall in and I actually had this with the, somebody the other day, my assistant. Um, and I said to her, I said, be careful ever trying to be happier than happy. 
Um, and I feel like a lot of actors sometimes fall in this trap of you're so you want a job so badly, then you get the job, then the job's not paying you. You find out what other people on the job are getting paid. Now you're not happy anymore because before you just wanted to get a job on a set. Now you spend some time on a set, you find out what everybody else is making. Now you're not happy. And so they start to sabotage themselves. And I was blessed to be able to be a part of this show and learn so much because what yeah. ended up happening was there was all these other opportunities that were coming my way that sometimes people on the show just didn't have time to be a part of. Rather, it was, you know, with certain directors or this or, hey, we want somebody from Yellowstone to come. And it might be a multi-billion dollar business, but the other actors don't want to go. They're like, Denim, do you want to go? And I'm like, of course I want to go. <laughs> And so, you know, because I was like, I'm available, right? And so now wow. because of that, after a couple of years, now that starts to become all these other opportunities because you start to say yes to things and because others started saying no. And there's, you know, I think Christian Bale has said, was it like a, in an article before he was like, he wanted to thank Leonardo DiCaprio because a lot of the movies that Leonardo turned down, it went to him, you know? <laughs> I think that is understated. A lot of Hollywood is a lot of people, you know, you book jobs and you start saying no, and that becomes somebody else's blessing. And, you know, and, and because they're in the right place at the right time and they're trained and they're ready and they're focused. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up. I think that one of the important things is that you have to be ready and willing mm. to go to the next level in your life and also in your creation. Right. And you, decided after this is what blows my mind and so many people you decided after all the things you're talking about your success you're saying yes to everything to say yes to coming to class and studying with me when you have a series what made you decide okay i mean first of all it's it's humbling to hear that that you would do that i think because i happen to be brilliant and you know that but besides that yes. what is it that made you decide you know what I want, I want, I want to take class. I want to take this class with Margie. Man. At the stage, I'm saying. It's, you know, I play, so I, I work out every single day. And when I was in Montana, I would, you know, work out usually for like two and a half hours every single day. So my first hour was playing basketball. And then the other hour was training, um, like weightlifting, et cetera. And I remember I was on the basketball court and I was like, you know, when I have some downtime, I would really love to get a basketball coach. Like, just because I was like, I do this every day. I take it so seriously. Um, you know, I go and play pickup games. I'm always looking to be in a league. You know, I, I still have dreams that I'm going to be in some Canadian league or someone's <laughs> going to pick me up at some point. <laughs> and then I stopped and I was like, Denim, that's really because I have conversations with myself just like I was having before we got on. Every single moment, I'm always talking to myself. I'm like my own best friend. And... I sat there and I was like, Denim, that's really interesting that you say you would do, have a basketball coach. Why aren't you, why don't you have an acting coach? And then I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't understand why. Because remember in 2017, the whole thing was, I, I, I can't afford to have an acting coach. And if I ever got an opportunity to do that. And then, so immediately there was, I was completely uninterested. I was so hell bent um, about then calling when I was like, as soon as I'm back in LA, which was like a week later, I was like, as soon as I'm in LA, I'm making a phone call and then called. And I, it was because it was the, I am such a, um, when I commit myself to something, yeah. um, that's it. You can't, you can't keep me off of it. It's done. Um, and so when I remember when I told people, I said, look, man, I, I know that I'm great, but every great athlete that I have ever known and every great artist that I've ever known, there's been a great coach that has been right next to them. And it's, if you really believe that you are who you say you are, then what are you doing? So I was like, well, then I need to go train with the best and that's what has to happen. And this is just what we're going to do. And, you know, that was immediately like when I called your, when I called your studio and then they said, you have this three day masterclass, um, which who anyone's listening to this, she has one, I think October 14th, 15th and 16th. <laughs> it's booked, but we have November. Okay. It's booked. <laughs> so it's November. You know, these are good problems. For um, but you know, and it changed, you know, and then that was it, you know, and now we're doing this. So, I mean, you're the, you are the best. And I remember within five minutes of me being on the thing, I was so emotional because it felt like after five years, six years, seven years of the process clicking in, not the journey, but the process of the journey and sitting here and I'm going, Denim, do you realize that like literally five years ago, you were in Barnes and Noble buying her book 
And now you're sitting here and you're talking with her like you have to under, and I have to give myself that moment to sit in that. Um, and so mm-hmm. just, you know, I, I just I it's it's a lot for me, but it's, it's such a blessing. It's a blessing because of your passion, because of your commitment, because of your love to be the best that you can be, Denim, the, the best of yourself. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, you remind me of me, myself, you know, only 100 years younger, because you have such passion and love to be to do everything, to be the best of yourself. And I talk to myself all the time. And it's I and I do. There are people that do, I talk to myself, Margie, you know what? You may be old, but you're, you're look at how wonderful. So if you lose your voice in the middle of this, you'll you'll he'll he'll talk for you. I'm always talking to myself, too. And I think it helps. I think it it's really helped me a lot. Uh, I want to get to a couple of things because we could talk forever. And one of the things I want to talk to you about was your experiencing now with your, your experience with self tape, just do a little bit about that and zoom because yeah. self tape has become so huge and it always has been, but guess what? Everybody zoom is right there too. Yes. And we do a lot of zoom in class and people are so afraid to take my class because they don't want to do zoom. I only want to do in person. But Zoom classes blow me away. So tell me a little bit about your experiences with self-tape and Zoom and that stuff. I I have, whenever I would get a self-tape audition, I would have tremendous anxiety because of all of the reasons of, you know, part of my stick as an artist was being able to go in and win a room with my personality. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of come in and they don't expect the, 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 the body to match the voice or just the personality. And, and I kind of have refined that over the years. So being able to go in and win a room, that was like a major thing for me. And then when it got to self-tape, it was like, how do you win the room on a self-tape? Like there's no one to talk to. And it was really, really challenging for me, which is probably why I don't think it took a long time before I ever booked anything from a self-tape, but that was just based off of the numbers game and probably just because they're like, yeah. well, he's on a big show. So yeah, he could do it. Um, <laughs> so, so when we got to Zoom, um, which is one of the things of why I took your masterclass and I actually took it because of Denim, for three years, you've been fighting what is undoubtedly the inevitable. They're going to do Zoom. And you have to get used to it and you're uncomfortable. And if you want to be great, go into the uncomfortable. So when your masterclass came up, it was only on Zoom. As much as I abhorred it, I loved it because I was like, great, three solid days where I'm going to be in an uncomfortable world and this is going to make me great. And so that was the reason why. And then, you know, like you talk about so much in the classes, how to utilize Zoom. And I never looked at it in the way because I didn't want to, you know, like you hate anything you don't understand. And that's what I did. I hated it because I didn't understand it. And because I didn't believe that you can book on it. I felt like that was something you could do a producer session on. I was like, what what are we going to do? Well, you can't know what I can do based off of this. And then when you start to like use your environment and that wording of using your environment and the lighting and the space of it all, and then realizing like it's a self tape, you can, you can play with it. You can have, it doesn't have to be so sterile. Um, So being in your class is really, I mean, just for me, even in the last couple of weeks, I've really felt like I've embraced it. Um, You know, so now I'm really happy about it. So, but that's the, that's the future uh everyone is, is zoom and self-tape so yep. might as well take your class and learn how to do it it's like a play to me i mean you know what we did in class we did um uh gone girl and yep. you standing oh my god you you've got you're already so much better standing yep. by the doorway dropping playing with the keys living the life which is what i taught you is that was so funny because everyone is waiting and you're carrying on having fun and i'm saying to you well, why not live the life because in when you're on state when you're on set you just technically start, but you yeah. forget that creating this. Get into the mode of it. No, absolutely. And that's, it's, I think about it all the time. And now I'm applying that to so many other things of what is happening. And it's actually gotten me to get into characters faster because you're Definitely. not aligned. You're thinking about the, what the, what was happening before in their life and why they're there. And now that just, then the lines come because you're listening um, and you know what to say because you're, you're fully submersed in the, in what the character was already going through. Um, and that, that's why I didn't, I don't like moment before or opening beat because those are technical things. When you are living in the continuum and you have that and it feeds you, you're there already. 
So oh. it's, it's a, to me, it's a blessing that you catch things so quickly. All right. We've gone through your whole acting. We have a lot. We could do a lot more. But let's just say that. Um, I do want to say one thing before we leave your acting thing. I'm so impressed with I just listened to it. This short that you're doing, Zoo, the zoo, yeah. about the African-American prisoners being experimented by the Nazis. And I'm a Jew. See how much more common we have. Right. What made you get into? What made you do do such an incredible direct it? I believe. Yeah, I direct. Yeah, I directed it, wrote it, and um, and produced it. Wow. And um, you know, I'm a big historian. I love our, our our black history is so dense and it's so beautiful. And you know, growing up in the the system, you know, in the in the West, you know, we were kind of taught like you know our history was slavery, and then when there wasn't slavery. Um, then if you wanted to be smart, you got killed like Malcolm or Martin. Um, and then you could be an athlete or you could be a basketball player, you know, as long as you were entertaining us, it was good, which was no different than what it was when we were slaves. And so, you know, one day I was doing this, this research, this was in 2011, 12. And I was wondering, I'd actually got finished watching a movie and I was like, I wonder if, you know, all this was going on in the forties. 1940s, I wonder what was happening like in Africa. And I started doing research and realized that Germany was in Africa at that time. And the whole point of them being in Germany was that they were trying to colonize Africa. Um, it was a, it was an arms race. Um, and I'll just spit out. So they had something called the Berlin conference was in the 18, uh, 1885 where they it was 13 European nations in the United States that got together to figure out how they were going to carve up Africa. And this was part of their colonization plan, which is why in certain places in Africa, there's Britain and they speak French um, and Spanish um, or Portuguese. And um, so the study was that they wanted to go in and they were burning up when they would go to Africa. They were so hot. They couldn't understand how the people there were able to survive. So they would start taking um, African uh, men and women and they would start experimenting on them. And to testing their skin and doing certain sort of things because they wanted to see how they could crack this genetic code that they had. And if they could crack this code, then they would be able to survive uh, with the wow. competition. And so, and strangely enough, or not strangely, but this is the reality of it. They actually had um, zoos, physical zoos. Like, that's why I call it the zoo. Um, even up until the 1950s in New York, in the Bronx, they actually had zoos where they would take black people from the Congo, <gasps> recreate the like the huts and all these other things and take pregnant women and children and put them in the zoo and people in New York would come and buy tickets to watch our no. people in the zoo. You can everyone that's listening can go and type it in. Yeah. So this was wow. all in the 1950s. So this was an opportunity to showcase that. Um, I have a feature film in the series that we're going to do on that, but this short film was a proof of concept um, so that people, cause it's so astounding that people don't even believe it. So I had to put it wow. together um, what, send, when is it coming out? Um, so the zoo, I, I, I have it out. I'll send it to you. Um, oh, the short, please so do. short, but we have a the feature we're working on right now because I want to do it in Africa. The forgotten uh, ones. Yeah, the forgotten ones. Yeah, I know everything about you now. You do, and so it's actually going to be called. We're going to rename it probably to Shark Island because it's a place that's right off of Namibia where the Germans took oh. um, black people. Um, so it's a it's a big project, wow. but yeah, that's that's a it's part of what I feel like my calling is is to tell our stories. Um, in a different lens than just, you know, we're always downtrodden. This is really a story about the human spirit um, and what we're able to to do with the least of things. I can't wait to see that. And if you need any help with any of the actors, you didn't know how to call, kind of reach me. Woo, that sounds like fun. All right, let me just get right into how, what a, this whole philanthropic, this whole humanitarian life you live. You with Africa. I mean, so you go, you, you, you meet your wife. I mean, and right. And, and yeah, can you tell me the, and cause I've, I've been to Botswana. That's yeah. gorgeous there. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. What a magnificent place. I, I was there. I took Michael, my son, about okay. three, four years ago. Fantastic. Beautiful. beautiful. The elephants, the, 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 oh my God, the, the, the nature. It's, it's the unbelievable. Biggest, the biggest preserver of elephants on the continent. Um, so. Unbelievable. I was just, was there swimming next to me. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it in the mud. <laughs> anyway, I could go on about Africa, but we don't have time. You're, you're, this is longer than any podcast I've ever done. But continuing on, just tell me about your, you know, the, the stuff that you're doing, because I think it's so, the give back. And why? Why with these young kids that have, you know, that are abused, 
but can we do it in a short version? Yeah, I'll do it truncated. So um, I work with a, a great organization here in the States called Operation Underground Railroad, um, and their company is dedicated to eradicating um, trafficking and child sex trafficking and human trafficking all over the world. Um, and I met them when I was actually shooting Yellowstone in Utah in 20, 2017. Um, and I finally was able to uh, get to a point where I felt confident enough. I would always support them, but I wanted to be a partner with them. And so, um, you know, I wanted to become a spokesperson for things because I, you know, child sex trafficking is like an $80 billion a year business. Um, and oftentimes what happens is like for when disasters happen in either Haiti and things of that, all those kids get displaced and then they get sold all over the world and there's no advocate for them. And so one of the things I wanted to do, um, you know, and I always promised the most high that whenever I got to a place where I felt like I had some influence and a voice that I wasn't going to spend it on, you know, consume more of me, but to show and spread light on other things. So I partnered with them and then I have my organization safe stage, which is, um, for children that have come from uh, abusive backgrounds and sexual abuse, molestation, you name it, um, to be able to express their um, and have therapy, therapy um, through the arts um, for every stage of their mm. life, uh, which is why I call it safe stage. Um, and so we kind of give these therapeutic lessons, but then also be able to express how you feel instead of going out and feeling like you have to have, be self-destructive because you don't you don't think that people understand how you're feeling. So we do it through the arts and through play and through music and things Fabulous. like that. I guess I'll be taking a trip to Botswana and uh, I have a total intention now of going back to Botswana to work with those children. Please, please do. Please. You have to invite me and put me up somewhere. I will. Of course, of course. I'm not going to just have you. I'm not going to have you do it. I, I got you. <laughs> Good. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, a couple more things. And one is, uh, the the book that I've written, Fuck Your Comfort Zone, in class uh, last week, you picked it up and yes. you opened it up to yes. probably one of the most important chapters, which is chapter five, which is a five ego states. And the piece that you actually opened up and read to the class was the critical parent. Yes. Tell me why that has how that has affected you and how and 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 how the book has helped you with that yeah so everyone should go out and get um margie's new book it's on amazon everyone should go get it and when you get it write a very good review because it is that great um <laughs> yes the critical parent is was something that was like it always resonated with me because i think that was a, a major reason why i didn't do as well as I should have done in auditions and things of that nature, because I was always telling myself that this is going to go to somebody else that's so much more talented than you, that's working harder than you. And so I, it, it was paralyzing. It literally paralyzed me. Um, and so, but it was the first time that I ever heard, I always heard the voice, but there was never an, a, an identification of what that voice was until I I read the book and I was like, oh, the critical parent, this is exactly who this person is. And I spend far too much time with this person. Um, yeah. And so now what it's done is anytime I'm going through something, it's like, what are these, like, let's just to simplify it, what category are we going to put this in? Is this the fearful child? Is this the adult? Is this the critical parent? And once I started being able to do that, it's actually made just personally my life a lot easier because now I'm not as reactive to things. Mm. Um, because mm. I identify these, my weaknesses as far as when things that are making me triggered. Um, and so the critical parent was a major thing because I was like, man, there's so many people and a lot of artists, especially that get this, this, this industry is so challenging. And it's, it's, it's the only industry in the world where when you don't get the job, they don't tell you why, um, you just yeah. don't hear from them. And it's, when you do that, you're leaving a lot of space for negativity and that critical parent gets really, really loud. Um, so for me, I thought that was really important because it was what I was going through, but I know a lot of artists as well. Yes. They hear that critical parent um, mostly all the time. And then it's the fearful child and then they just have a relationship. <laughs> yep. And that's why it's so important to bring out your nurturing parent. But you do that because I listened to you. You're very much connected to these five voices because you started out this podcast talking to yourself before I started. And you're talking to yourself either in the playful child or the adult or the yeah. nurturing parent. Yeah. You're not talking in the critical parent and you're not talking in the fearful child, which is the way you, you process this yeah. in, in an 
in natural form, which is Just now you can forward. divide it into these categories. It's the only way right? to me to be able to go forward. Like, and you know, you got to get into a space. You have to own the space that you're in, but you also have to get yourself to where you feel worthy of being in the space and prepared to be in the space. And for me, I, one of the great things about like even social media is, you know, I try to post a lot of motivational things. Um, and people ask me all the time, like, how are you motivational all the time? And I was like, it's not, I'm not motivational all the time, I'm not positive all the time, but it's a muscle and you have to like everything, you have to work out that muscle and it is hard. It's hard to want to not Very. the victim. It's hard to not, cause it's easy. Being a victim is so easy because mostly everybody allows you to be a victim. And yeah. so you have to have the adult that comes in and say, you don't have to be a victim. You have to have control over your circumstance, you know? And so I think after many years of sitting with myself, uh, you know, it's funny that you said that I walk around sometimes at the mall with my headphones in just so when I'm talking to myself, people think that I'm on the phone talking. I'm the same way. I talk to myself out loud all the time and people think I'm mental. We should have gotten married, except that I'm a lesbian and you're um, married already. Otherwise you could have. Put headphones in. So I put headphones in so that people think I'm on the phone. I do it all. I know. It's great. (laughs) I think that's absolutely hysterical. I am so, this is something I'm so glad it's a secret we could share with the entire population. Let's end this. I could go on forever. This is definitely the longest one I've done, but it's been fantastic. You said something, and I and I wanted to say, because I, usually I end it by giving advice to actors, to human beings, of ways of getting out of your comfort zone or things like that. And you've covered so many. And one thing you said that I'm going to quote you on, quote, really listen and stay true to yourself. Yeah. You said yeah. that. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that would be that you want to leave with or expand on that? To me, I think, you know, knowing who you are is going to give you the best opportunity to be successful because then you don't feel as though you go into a room or a, a space, any space that you're in and feel inadequate because now you're trying to be something that you're not and you can't be something that you're not and succeed in that. So the more that you sit with yourself, the more that you check in with yourself, the more that you ask yourself how you're feeling, um, why are you reacting to that? I think the greater version of you, and that's what people are going to buy. They're going to buy the greatest version of you. And uh, to me, that's what I try to live. And the last thing I would say is don't wallow in your sorrows because it's not productive. That's get out of the triangle, chapter three victim, persecutor, rescuer, and be the adult. You are a joy. I, I'm looking forward. Hey, we do a self-tape so next week, so that's good. Yes. You are a joy. I can look at your self-tape. And you you really are uh, such an addition to the class, to my life. I'm just so happy that you're in it. It makes me cry because I'm just really excited about this, this Thank journey you, you and I are taking together. I can't wait to learn how to ride a horse in Montana. Well, look, we're going to get you with some hats and some boots and we're going to get you settled. But everyone, you have to understand Margie is the best and she's so genuine. Um, so make sure you go out there and get her book, get in her classes um, and and make sure you write really great reviews because she's greater than most people even say that she is. So thank you, Margie. Oh, you're, you're so sweet. I love you so much. And for everybody, fuck your comfort zone. Live a life. I hope today's podcast inspires you to stay open, let go of control, be present, and above all, be kind to yourself. If you'd like to explore more of my philosophy in the studio, go to MargieHaber.com. And if you want to purchase a copy of my book, Book Your Comfort Zone is available on Amazon. Stay tuned for our next episode.